0: The guardian happy birthday welcome to the world of 29ers
2: <laughs> thank you very much oh yeah i forgot that you're like slightly older than um, me yeah and this is a bane of our like two friendship months older than you. Yeah, if you don't follow me on twitter which you can do at jerrica weber you might not know that it was my birthday recently in fact, I'm still celebrating it because I like to keep the festivities going for a whole birth month. But I share my birth month with another well-known member of the tech community. You may have heard of it.
0: So, this month, Facebook turned 15.
2: I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week we look back at how Facebook has grown into the teenager it is today through the lens of one of its early investors who feels the company and its creator have lost their way from the original dream.
3: I love Facebook. As a product. But, you know, I don't know how this is going come down. Man.
2: We also look at the generation of teenagers who have grown up alongside the likes of Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And ask whether or not
4: the apps they use today are safe. You know, in a in a physical playground, it's fairly straightforward that you need to have equipment which is in good shape, that it is repaired regularly, that it's been tested to ensure, you know, that it's that it's broadly safe to use, doesn't have sharp edges, etc. But in the online context, it's it's not quite so obvious how that equates.
2: And with a lot of fear about children spending lots of their time on these digital devices. We take a look at how some researchers are suggesting we change the way we measure the psychological effects that screen time can have on children.
5: On the one hand, we have this huge amount of concern covered daily almost in in the media and the national and international press. But then we also live in this other world where we look at this numerical evidence on a day-to-day basis and see that there is not actually this compelling evidence which you would expect if you would be looking at the headlines. This is Chips with Everything
2: So it's celebrating its quinceañera. Yes. I really had to
0: uh, translate that in my head. I, I <laughs> do not speak Spanish and Yeah, for those who don't the know,
2: the uh, Latin America celebration for when a young woman reaches 15 and enters adulthood
0: I hope to God Facebook thinks of itself as having come of age before now. I
2: I invited The Guardian's UK tech editor, Alex Hearn, into the studio to talk me through the ups and downs of Facebook's life to date. We started all the way back in 2004.
0: There is this narrative, right, that Mark Zuckerberg, as a Harvard student, decided to, well, firstly to build this FaceMash app, uh, which was a, a... hot or not game created using images scraped from Harvard student database that let people rank their fellow students, and then sort of pivoted maybe at the suggestion of the Winklevi twins, maybe not, into building the Facebook that was a digital version of the Harvard Facebook, a place where students could go to connect and chat with other students. It was fairly different from the Facebook we know now, actually, although on the surface quite similar, it was still profile pics. It was still a wall you post on. There was more poking back then and I think there was quite a lot less rampant data harvesting. (laughs) You know,
2: it was blue. So who's Roger McNamie? How does he fit into Facebook's early days?
3: So I've been a technology investor since 1982 and a tech optimist
0: until very recently. So he was one of the earliest investors in Facebook. He, I think, first got involved with the company about 2009 And probably his biggest link to Facebook is he's the person who introduced Mark Zuckerberg to Sheryl Sandberg, his longtime second in command, Facebook's chief operating officer for more than a decade.
2: Alex recently interviewed Roger for an article for The Observer, where the investor talks about his new book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe.
3: And what I was really trying to do was to use my personal narrative to help people understand what matters was that as new news came along, they could interpret it for themselves.
0: He did want to emphasize that, uh, yeah, it's not a hit job on Mark Zuckerberg, but it is not a happy reading for Facebook either. Mm. Um, In his narrative, he watched Facebook from afar for, for five or six years after he kind of stepped back because, as he put it, once Cheryl came in, Zuckerberg didn't really need a an external mentor with a lot of business experience. He had an internal second in command with the business experience. He had he had stepped back and uh, been a bit of an external cheerleader for a long time uh, until his views changed.
2: So obviously, a big turning point for Facebook and for the world came in 2016. But we will talk about that in a second. Facebook had suffered setbacks before the likes of Brexit and Trump. Can you give us some of the highlights or lowlights, I guess?
0: Well, I mean, so one of the most consequential ones these days is when Facebook was slapped with the FTC's consent decree. Basically, Facebook sat down one day and changed everyone's privacy settings. It decided that everyone uh, had their accounts too locked down. There wasn't enough sharing and it changed them. The US Federal Trade Commission came in and said, no, no, no. (laughs) If, If someone tells you that they want their profile to only be visible to friends, you cannot come in and go what if everyone's profile was visible to everyone that would boost facebook use and take up yes let's change that uh the ftc said no if if someone gives you a privacy setting it has to stay that way and you can't justify it by going oh well we introduced a whole raft of new privacy settings so we reset everyone's Mm. to the new defaults which are weaker
2: so Roger McNamee was watching all this from the sidelines back in the day. Do we know how he felt about these kind of crises in Facebook's history?
0: We had a
3: wonderful relationship. I liked him enormously.
2: And uh, so his
0: feeling about Facebook until he reached these systemic problems that that have led to the the current huge backlash was basically that Facebook was firstly a really solid business and, you know, he is a a tech investor first and foremost. And secondly, that in some ways it was significantly better than the competition. A big thing that he felt was hugely important for it as a social network was it had what he calls uh, authenticated identity. In other words, compared to Myspace or Friendster, uh, the social networks that came before Facebook, in the early days when you signed up for Facebook, you signed up for it very explicitly as part of a real life network of people and you needed to be verified as part of that real-life network you needed to be at harvard and say you were at harvard and other people at harvard needed to kind of okay that later on that extended to other american schools and then uh worldwide schools by the time i joined it it was quite open but i joined it as part of my secondary school and that was a link to a real world identity that no other social network had really done by then and so For a long time, it looked like a force of good, I think. It looked like someone bringing respectability and real-world values and making people put their name next to their online speech.
1: The British people have voted to leave the
3: European Union and their will must be respected.
1: The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action.
2: Then came 2016, the year the UK voted to leave the European Union, otherwise known as Brexit, and Donald Trump was elected President of the United States of America. This was a turning point in Roger's relationship with Facebook.
3: So in, in January 2016, I was on vacation with my wife. And, I, you know, I imagine that I was a huge cheerleader for Facebook and, you know, really proud of a small role that I had played in success. And suddenly I saw things uh,
0: originally around... So he cites the 2016 election, sure. which I think is not uncommon, as, uh, <laughs> as an example of why people fell out of love with Facebook. He says there were, there were two things that happened around that time that really changed his view of the social network. Well, three, two things in his response to them. The first was that he started seeing a lot of misogynistic abuse of Hillary Clinton on Facebook. And he just couldn't understand why and how this strain of what he thought was was horrible attacks on Clinton, why it had come seemingly out of nowhere, why it was going so viral on Facebook. And that made him really start to question the value of facebook in, in in democracy the the role facebook has to play in the political culture and the other big thing was the uh discovery that there was a data mining effort on facebook to find black lives matter supporters harvest their profiles and sell that information to police departments it was a, a, a blunt profiling thing it was absolutely squashing legitimate protest And again, it wasn't entirely clear that Facebook was really doing much about this. It certainly didn't seem to be actively pushing back against it in a huge way.
2: We should make clear that both of the practices Alex mentions were examples of Facebook being abused rather than Facebook being abusive. Facebook never approved the selling of data from supporters of Black Lives Matter to police departments. Users were simply annoyed that they didn't do more to stop it.
0: And those two things, he says, made him... Worry for the first time that Facebook might not be a force for good, both in terms of its its systemic effects and also the, the company itself. And the real thing that forced his hand, he says, was he wrote up these concerns in a memo to Mark and Cheryl, which is included in uh, in the appendix of his book, the, the original memo that he wrote. He wrote it for publication and sent it to his friends to say, hey, you know, here is a heads up. I, I want to publish this. Um, what do you think? And they came back and they basically said, there's not a problem. We've, we've got this under control. Don't publish it because we're going to fix it. But, you know, there's, there's not really a problem and, and we're dealing with this. You know, he, he came out going, okay, well, if, if they've got it under control and they never fixed it. And he said that for him was kind of the moment he decided that this wasn't something that you could uh, fix from inside the tent that he needed to get a bit public. Eventually,
3: I gave up. I just realized that, you know what? They really aren't ever going to change. And uh, uh, so that's when I decided I'd better figure out exactly what happened. So we're talking the
2: spring of To date, neither Mark Zuckerberg nor Sheryl Sandberg has responded to Roger's story about this memo. However, Roger never did publish the blog. He subsequently stopped advising Zuckerberg. And in 2017, he started working with Tristan Harris, who was once a Google design ethicist, but left the company in 2016.
3: So the two of us teamed up in April of 2017 and set out to see if we couldn't raise awareness enough to get a conversation going.
0: So Roger and Tristan joined forces to push more generally for for Facebook and Google to start thinking about how they how they have these systemic effects on the world, and how maybe actually designing for maximal engagement isn't the only thing that these companies should be doing.
2: So he doesn't speak to Zuckerberg or Sandberg anymore. But unlike Alex, who quit Facebook and thinks we'd all be better off without it, Roger believes that Facebook could be better and more beneficial to society.
3: You know, Mark is an authoritarian leader of an organisation that built enormous economic success through a combination of hard work and brilliant insights however with that economic power came unprecedented political influence and political
0: power he still thinks that Zuckerberg is a phenomenally talented businessman I mean I I, I asked him does Facebook need to be destroyed is the only way out of this the end of it and he said no I think he thinks that a Facebook that paid more attention to disinformation, that that prioritised fighting these problems on its platform rather than burying its head in the sand, that one that was just slightly less laser focused on expanding and burying its competitors and more focused on serving its consumers could be good. And he thinks that with you know a mixture of consumer and government pressure from the outside, maybe that will get through.
2: So for Roger, Facebook still has some growing up to do. But what about the human beings who have grown up
4: in Facebook's connected world? I think we do owe them, you know, more secure, more safe, more positive environments online. But you know, perhaps as you know, it's very hard to uh, check the age of young people and, and children online exactly.
2: More on that after this short break.
4: it's time to focus
1: the mood in the uk right now it seems to me is a huge set of tensions and contradictions and emotions and feelings about our past and we're not thinking very much about the future
4: today in focus is the new daily podcast from the guardian join me anushka astana for the best stories from our journalists around the world subscribe now to today in focus from the guardian
2: Welcome back to Chips with Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Webber. Before the break, The Guardian's UK tech editor, Alex Hearn, talked us through the history of Facebook, based on the accounts of former investor Roger McNamee. I mentioned at the top of the show that I just celebrated my birthday. I turned 29. If you're around the same age as me or older, then you probably remember a time when the likes of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram didn't exist when you connected with friends and family by calling them on the phone or meeting them in person. For teenagers today, it's a different story. They've grown up with social media and all sorts of apps that let them connect with people all over the world. Critics have expressed concerns over the safety of these apps, from the possibility of bullying to child grooming. In keeping children connected to the wider world, some apps have let in harm.
4: I am in my 40s, in my mid-40s, a lot of these things are associated with age, uh, so I primarily use Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, if I were 20 years younger, or even 30 years younger, it's quite likely, looking at the data, that I would use rather different social media. So my kids, for example, would be more likely, if they were typical of their age groups, sort of 12 and up, to be using things like kick, TikTok, uh, Snapchat, I guess, and possibly Instagram. Facebook, I believe, is on the decline.
2: Vicky Nash is the Deputy Director of the Oxford Internet Institute, with a particular interest in policy around children's use of the Internet. Producer Danielle spoke to her about some of the newer apps that are particularly popular among adolescents.
4: It's probably worth noting that then I think often as adults we're a bit behind the curve, so we have to rely on uh, survey data and then, and then sort of market research data really to tell us exactly what the kids are using. First up,
2: Vicky breaks down the social networking app House Party. Which is specifically aimed at tweens who want to connect with friends, but whose guardians might consider them too young for other apps.
4: You know, on the one hand, I think House Party is good because it doesn't have uh, a search function. So I think it was initially sort of advertised as a way of having safe conversations, video chats with your with your friends. On the other hand, you know, we we all know that an important part of being a tween, being a teenager, as you're growing up is taking risks and having live chats, having video chats with friends, but also friends of friends is increasingly a part of that. So the idea that that something like a house party to a, to a child, to a parent is only going to enable them to speak to their direct friends, if you like, you know, they're, they're the school friends, their family, is I think a bit naive. So as far as I can see, you know, it, it, it is a sort of helpful step. It's trying to discourage the possibility of of strangers out of the blue contacting children, on the other hand, it still enables them, if they want to uh, have you know strangers who've contacted them, say via Facebook, for example, to add them to their chats on house Party. so you know none of these things are, are ever as entirely safe as, as perhaps they you know they, they initially seem then there 's kick, or as Vicky puts it, perhaps a sort of riskier version of uh, something like house Party, in that it is eminently searchable, it enables conversations. You know, not based on your address, but not based on your contact list, but simply uh, searchable. I think there are recommendation systems whereby it will suggest to you people who are nearby, for example. You know, I find that sort of worrying, the possibility of combining location information about young people with uh, strangers possibly nearby.
2: One incredibly popular app is TikTok, the Chinese answer to the late Great Vine. This app encourages people to upload short 15-second videos of themselves, singing, dancing, or doing any number of things. The app has raised concerns for the safety of younger users, and TikTok recently introduced a feature called digital well-being.
4: So yes, as I understand it, there are two elements. One is, I think, about excessive screen time. So I can't remember, I think it's I think it's around two hours you can set it for, and it will tell you you've been on it for too long. So that's one part. The other is, in theory, a sort of restricted mode, which would filter out inappropriate content you know a lot of music a lot of pop videos use uh, you know very adult content uh, or it's very sexualized content uh, so to me this was actually one of the worries about tiktok i i have to say i've yet to see exactly how effective that filtering is i would have thought it's quite difficult to make this completely effective but at the very least i suppose it is an improvement on what we had before
2: going back to the first aspect of tiktok's digital well-being feature the concept of too much screen time has worried parents since children started to gravitate towards phones and tablets from a younger age. Experts and politicians are often quoted in the media, telling the public that use of digital devices can have serious psychological effects for kids, but others aren't so sure.
5: I'm Amy Orbin, and I'm a college lecturer at the University of Oxford. My colleague Andrew Chbilsky at the Oxford Internet Institute and I published a paper in early 2019 where we had a look at why we know so little about digital technologies and how it affects adolescents. Um, it was published in Nature and Behaviour and it's called the Association of Digital Technologies and Adolescent Wellbeing. Amy said
2: that the two academics were interested in exploring this idea that screen time somehow decreases well-being in adolescence.
5: And I think what makes screen time such an easy thing to talk about in the media in the public debate and in the political debate is that we can measure it we can put a timer on it and we can provide a a numerical estimate of screen time and so it's it's a very easy entity to work with that doesn't mean that it's the best entity but it's definitely the easiest so
2: how did you conduct your research and how did it compare to previous studies that you'd seen
5: So at the moment, researchers don't do enough to safeguard themselves from their own little biases when examining very powerful, large data sets. And it has been shown that if they don't safeguard themselves, there can be biases in the results that they find. And this is what we try to address. So it's a very kind of nerdy methodological point. So the, the research we carried out examines not only one data set but multiples. So we have three data sets spanning the UK and the US and we have over three hundred thousand adolescents data um, cross sectionally so we we can't make causal claims, but we can look at a great number of adolescents and see what the association is between digital technologies and well being. There were thousands of different ways to show in the same data set and with the same research question that there is a negative association between digital technologies and well being, but there were also thousands of ways that could have found a positive relationship between those two variables or a non significant relationship. This explains why we're maybe seeing all these conflicting results on a weekly basis and it also gives suggestions of how we can move forward and actually start understanding what screen time is doing to adolescents.
2: So did you find any indication from your research that there might be these negative effects associated with long periods of screen time or is it just that we had loads of possible results and you can't really tell which is right.
5: So what we were able to do is we could take a sort of average of all these possible results that researchers could have found and get an indication of what the effect might be that is the actual true effect underlying all of this. And what we did find is that there is a small negative association between digital technologies and well-being. So an adolescent that uses more digital technologies shows lower questionnaire responses to do with mental health, but crucially. this this effect is extremely small. So for example, if you would introduce me to a teenage girl who uses X amount of screen time, I could only predict from the amount of screen time she uses 0.4% of her well-being. And we try to put that into perspective by comparing digital technology use to other things that teenagers do. So we know that teenagers, some eat breakfast and some don't. And we see that eating breakfast regularly has a much more positive effect than um, digital technologies has a negative effect. And we also know that some teenagers take drugs or um, drink alcohol, and that has a more negative effect than digital technologies has a negative effect. So we, we show that when we take digital technologies in general and look at adolescent well being in general, there's only that very small effect and we, we say in the paper that we don't think that merits this great amount of discussion that we have about screen time and it it raises the prospect that we as scientists but also as a society need to change the conversation to something that's more worthwhile about digital technologies and how they're affecting the, the youngest in our population.
2: Amy and Andy's study doesn't lay out all of the effects, negative or positive, that screen time has on young people. It just
5: suggests a different way of finding out what they might be. And I think what this research supports is this notion that parents should really think about what types of digital technologies their children use and what type of people their children are, So, and adapt how they limit or how they parent these technologies with their child at the heart. So more or less a key takeaway message is that at the moment, the evidence doesn't exist to say that screen time is inherently harmful for adolescents. And we need to ask more nuanced questions about what sort of screen time um, children are looking at and which adolescents might be negatively affected and which adolescents might be positively affected to kind of pinpoint those that we should be worried about in future.
2: And for parents looking for ways to better protect their children who, like many children, do use social media and other popular apps, Vicky Nash has a suggestion.
4: It's something called uh, netaware.org.uk. Um, the NSPCC linked this also from their website. And it basically gives you a summary of the most popular apps available that are used by kids and teens. And then it gives you a rundown of the various uh, sort of risks and, and features. And it's quite a, quite a good one because actually it tells you what kids and parents think about it.
2: That's all we have time for this week.
4: There will be a link to Alex
2: Hearn's work, Roger Mcnami's book and Amy Auburn's study on this week's episode description on The Guardian website. Feel free to send us any ideas for future episodes. Just email us at chipspodcast at I'm jordan Erica Webber. Thanks for listening.
3: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardiancom podcasts.
1: Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time.